wish you would. Welcome to our Tuesday Ruth Chris Bible study. Um, those of you that are here for your first time, welcome. The owner of Ruth's Chris does this as an outreach to our community, to the business community, to the people working. And um, so he provides the food and the place, and I provide the teaching. We, one thing we ask is just leave a few bucks for a tip each week. Uh, whatever you think the services work is pretty good, and they're pretty awesome to do this for us. So I tell people, you know, bring five bucks or so, throw it in. It's cheaper than what you'd spend on lunch anywhere else. Um, so that being said, afterwards, if there's seconds, feel free to get some as well. And there will be next door to us, they're doing a presentation, so nobody go over and tell them to shh. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 6 ended with Moses being reaffirmed by God, being recommissioned. And now in chapter 7, uh, the action picks up. And Exodus 7 through 12 is going to be a uh, presentation of these, what are called, commonly called the ten plagues. Uh, scripture calls them the ten signs or miraculous wonders. And the purpose of the Exodus throughout, the thing to keep in mind, the purpose of these plagues is for God to show his sovereignty over the gods of Egypt, over all of the powers of Egypt and over Egyptian religion and Egyptian empire as a whole, right? So when God's doing these things, these plagues, these signs that he's doing aren't haphazard, they aren't random, they aren't magic tricks, and they're not just meant to pulverize the Egyptians because God doesn't want to destroy Egypt. He wants to ultimately redeem Egypt and all the world through the seed of Abraham, but he does want to destroy the foundation of their self, uh, their, their pride of empire, their, their self-sufficiency, their, their belief in Egyptian exceptionalism, to borrow a modern phrase. Uh, he wants to show that, no, 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 he is sovereign, not Pharaoh. So all of these signs, all of these, these works of nature that God's going to do are going to be geared at undermining aspects of the Egyptian faith, the Egyptian government, the Egyptian society, and ultimately the Egyptian socio-religious worldview. And as a result, we're going to see a number of Egyptians actually come to faith in God and end up leaving Egypt with the Israelites when they go out in the Exodus. So there's an evangelistic aspect to these plagues as well. All right. So we're in chapter 7, and there's a quick recap at the beginning, 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And that phrase is, I will bring out my army. It's a military term. 
and it's an ironic military term because the Egyptian, the Israelites are not going to be even anything remotely close to an army. They're going to be a rabble of slaves who've been enslaved for 400 years. But in God's eyes, they're going to be His army. He uses that term, uh, the military term here. We do it later in Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, when He pictures all of the redeemed throughout all of history who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who've given their lives for the sake of the gospel. They'll be pictured as the army of Israelites, 12,000 from each tribe, 44,000. So it's really interesting and cool ways that God uses that army symbolism in Scripture to kind of turn things on its head and to present what doesn't look through earthly eyes like an army as one through heavenly eyes. So to bring out my people, the Israelites, by their armies, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. That's the purpose of the Exodus. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. I am who I am. God, when Exodus started, Yahweh was a relatively, almost completely unknown God. The Israelites that may have remembered him would only have had dim memories of 430 years ago when their ancestors worshipped this God. But they had no clue who he was in his full revelation. And then at the burning bush, he reveals himself to Moses. He gives his nature and his character. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or I am the one who is. And he says, now I am going to step back on the stage of human history and make myself known to the Egyptians, because at this point, the Egyptians are what later Rome would be, which is the center of the world, the world superpower. All roads lead to Egypt at this point. Later, all roads lead to Rome. God's going to basically broadcast who he is for all the nations of the world to see. And it's going to be encapsulated in his bringing his people out of slavery to one would-be Lord into service of the one true Lord. And that's the paradigm that the New Testament uses for Christian salvation is God through Jesus, who's patterned as the new Moses in many ways throughout the gospel, leads his people out of slavery to the would-be Lord, who is Satan, the Lord of this time, the, the God of this age, or the God of the air, or the God of this world, as he's referred to in the New Testament, leads him out of slavery to him and into slavery to God himself, the one true God. So the Exodus is not just a historical event, it's a paradigm. It functions as a paradigm for all of God's saving, all of his salvation. So the New Testament authors will draw on Exodus continuously in how they talk about salvation, how they talk about even terms we think of religious terms like redemption. You know, I'm, I'm redeemed. What does that mean? Well, that's a term that means bought out from under slavery. That goes back to the Exodus. God redeems his people in the Exodus. So all of these notions of holiness, God setting apart, that comes in Exodus. The language of holiness is going to dominate the book of Exodus when God causes people out of Egypt and then sets them apart in the wilderness to be a different people, to be a unique people, a holy people. Language of priesthood, that will come in the Exodus when God creates them to be a kingdom of priests. All of these terms, all of our ideas of salvation and gospel are rooted in Exodus. They're rooted in the Exodus. That is the paradigmatic event for Jewish readers 
of the Bible in the first century. We think of like the big event is Christmas, the birth of Jesus. The big event is um, Easter. You know, we're about to celebrate Easter. That's the big Christian event when Jesus rose from the grave. Everybody knows about Easter. Everything revolves around Easter for Christians. Well, that's true. But Easter revolves around the Exodus for the first Christians. Easter was the continuation of the Exodus into the full spiritual realm. There's a reason why Jesus lifted up the cup at the Last Supper and said, this is the blood of the covenant poured out for you and for many. That was Passover that he was celebrating. When they celebrate their freedom from slavery, when they celebrated the Exodus, that's the time that God chose to step into human history and die on the cross to wrap up all of that Exodus imagery and, and, and carry it into this new event that would be described by the New Testament authors as the new Exodus, which is the redemption from sin itself. So it's, I'm, I, if you think I'm beating a dead horse, it needs to be beaten because <laughs> we miss this all the time because we don't study Exodus. It's not part of who we are. We're not, unless we come from a Jewish background, Exodus, Passover, all that stuff really isn't that big a deal. We want to get to Christmas and then Easter. But Exodus forms the identity of every author of every book of the Bible. Think about that for a minute. Every author of every book of the Bible, Old and New Testament, Exodus was a crucial part of their identity. So how much more then do we need to understand and see what it is and see the implications of it? So God is declaring this, and as a little side note, verse 6, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So forget <laughs> images of Christian Baal or even Charles Heston. Uh, Moses was in 80 when he started the Exodus. This is still, he's still got 40 more years of wandering in the wilderness and all that stuff. So his ministry, he's just getting into his stride and he's 80. So let that be a lesson to those of you who hit about 60, 65, and you think, I can kick back and retire now. I've done my deep. No, God may just be getting started with what he wants to do with you. All right? This, this idea of you got to be in your 30s and 40s to be church leaders, nonsense, hogwash. Um, so verse not 8, the first sign that he's going to know. Remember God had said, go to the Israelites. If they ask you, or Moses said, well, what if they ask me for a sign? God says, all right, here's some things you can do. And he gave him the three signs that he could do. Throw it on your staff, it will become a snake. Put your hand in your garment, pull out, it will have leprosy. Right? He gave them these, these little signs. So now he's going to do this in the presence of Pharaoh. But it's going to be a little different this time. This, this whole staff to snake thing is going to be a little different. <laughs> the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. Now, NIV has snake, but it's not the word snake. There, there are multiple words. The last time it was a snake, in, in chapter 4, when God first told Moses to do the sign, it used the word snake, nachash in Hebrew, and it means snake. This time, throw your staff down, and it will become a, and the Hebrew word is tanin. And the tanin was... There's no English equivalent, but it's found in multiple places throughout the Bible. It was found in Genesis 1 when God created the great tamin of the deep, the great sea monsters of the deep. It's found later in books like Job, in Isaiah, 
in Ezekiel where it describes a chaos monster, like a Leviathan type creature. Sometimes it describes a crocodile. Sometimes it's just translated as fearsome monster. Tanin is, is, is this word for a very scary, very powerful, uncontrollable serpent monster, right? Not a snake. Not the snake that Moses reached out and picked up by the tail and it turned back. This time, <laughs> it's a snake on steroids. It's a tanin. It's a chaos monster. It's the serpent, right? So it's just, it, it's a subtle difference, but it's like the stage has been stepped up. He's not doing this in front of Israelite elders anymore. He's doing this in front of Pharaoh himself. And all throughout Egyptian history and Egyptian culture, the tanin, the serpent, uh, sometimes also put in contrast or in, in comparison to the cobra. Like you have a regular snake and you have a cobra. If you've ever seen the two cobras are bigger than most snakes. Uh, the, the, the serpent in Egyptian iconography had this interesting history. There were some goddesses, like the goddess, um, let, let me make sure I get the name pronounced, Wajit. The, the Egyptian goddess Wajit was characterized by a cobra and it would be worn on the heads of the pharaohs. You know when you see a pharaoh and it's got the cobra on the head on the front? That actually has a name, it's called a uraeus. It's, it's the piece, the cobra piece on the head. And it's symbolic of the snake goddess Wajit who goes before, who spews out fire and venom and consumes the enemies of pharaoh. So the serpent was seen as this mighty uh, embodiment of Egyptian power. Also the serpent, there was a, there was a chaos monster in Egyptian folklore, Egyptian mythology, called Apophis. And Apophis was this Tanin-like god or goddess, this chaos monster, this serpent that opposed the sun god Red. And so Egyptian uh, mythology, there was this negative relationship between the sun god Red and this chaos serpent monster, Apophis. And they were in, they were in conflict with each other and the sun god would prevail, and that would be good because your crops would grow, and this and that, but the bad things happened, it meant that Apophis was prevailing, and, and you needed to really step up your prayers and your sacrifices and your incantations and all this stuff, because we've got to make sure that Ray keeps winning, because the sun is more important. Uh, so all in Egyptian iconography, all in Egyptian religion, in Egyptian culture, the serpent had this symbolic, it, it, it almost re was religious because there wasn't a separation of church and state back then. It was, church was the state and vice versa. It would be like, like the eagle is in America, right? A national symbol of America, the eagle. Now add to that a religious dimension. If America was a theocracy and the president was the high priest, and you get something of what's going on here with this sign. So it's not just randomness that's going on. It's you can throw it on your staff and it will become a tanin. It will become a serpent. That is significant in the eyes of the one who wears the serpent on his head, who embodies the one who keeps Egyptians free and safe from the chaos serpent. All of these images swirling around in this symbolic act. So it's really important to keep that in mind. Uh, so, verse 10, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a tanin. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, the Egyptian magicians, also did the same thing by their secret arts, or their incantations, or their crafts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a tanin. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. 
Yet Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So Moses tells Aaron, Aaron does this sign that's, you know, to have some effect. And then Pharaoh says, let me call all my guys. All right, let me, let me get, come here, guys. Because Egypt was a culture steeped in magic, steeped in the occult, steeped in incantations. And, uh, and, and there's whole books. I can bring you a volume of Egyptian incantations that tell you how to do who to talk to, what name to use, how to pray, what things to do to get things to happen. There was a whole school of thought in Egypt of, of, of magic and sorcery and this kind of stuff. And scholars are divided on what these Egyptian magicians did. Some say, well, they were sorcerers, they were occultists, and, and the occult is real. And so they also did something miraculous, but it was through a demonic power, not through the power of God. Other scholars say, oh, we live in the 21st century. That's a little hard to believe. They did trickery. They used sleight of hand. They were like the ancient David Blaine or David Copperfield or one of these street magicians that they could, they could make their staff look like it turned into a serpent, just like a guy can make a deck of cards look like it disappears or whatever. Well, to me, it's really inconsequential because the author of the Exodus doesn't tell us how they did it just says well, they did something similar, but it wasn't the same thing because their Tanin couldn't stand up to the Tanin that was created by Aaron's staff. Aaron's staff, that, that little, his swallowed them up. It's not an afterthought. It's to show that whatever they did was inferior to the symbol, that, the thing that God had done. Yes, it was impressive. Yes, it was interesting. It was a good magic trick, and Pharaoh probably used that as justification. Okay, well, I don't know exactly how Aaron just did this, but I know it's possible to do it and not be God, because my magicians just did something like it. And so he kind of rationalizes it away. But yet Aaron's staff swallowing up their staff, it was, was a, just a little indicator of the text. This is not sleight of hand trickery on God's part. Whatever it was on the part of the Egyptian magicians, or God's, you know, it, it literally happened. So make of it what you will. Some people have a hard time. Well, I can't understand. I can't accept stories where rocks turn into snakes and this and that. Once you accept the idea that a God can create the universe from nothing, rods and serpents, pretty easy to <laughs> right? Same with talking donkeys or somebody living in a fish or what. Oh, to me, it's like you, you choose your hierarchy of your worldview. Once you allow God exists, then you allow that God can interact with his creation. So you move from deism to theism. After that, the miraculous aren't as much of a problem logically. Now experientially, it's weird because none of us see this type of stuff on a regular basis. And usually the people that claim to see this type of stuff, you think, mm, I don't know. I'm going to just, you, you have a nice day, but I'm going to go this way. Um, so it's understandable that things like this are believe God's power over the created order. So a rod into a tanin, no big deal for the God who's going to split the ocean. All right? So thing to keep in mind. Um, also, there's a subtle foreshadowing in verse uh, 12. The end of verse 12, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. That word swallow in Hebrew, to swallow up, it's, it's a Hebrew word, balach, and it means to, it's almost like onomatopoeia, like balach, like you're swallowing. And it's only, the only other time it's used in Exodus, the only other time that word occurs in Exodus, 
is in chapter 15 when it talks about the Red Sea drowning the Egyptians and it says God stretched out his hand and the earth swallowed them up. And so this Aaron's Tamim chaos serpent swallowing up this one of the Egyptians is a foreshadowing of God going to use the ultimate symbol of the chaos serpent, which is the deep, the ocean, the abyss. And that's how it's described. The Exodus is described in the prophets as the splitting the head of the chaos serpent. If you read Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, it's described in the Psalms as God overthrowing Rahab, the chaos serpent, of showing his power over the abyss, over the deep. All of that imagery is used to describe the Exodus. And it's that same event that's said to have swallowed up the armies of Pharaoh, the one who embodied the ultimate mighty serpent himself. So there's tons of imagery floating around. Do, do some word studies on this, grab a commentary, look up times when words like the serpent or monster or deep or abyss or dragon or swallow up or any of those words appear. And you start to see how the Bible weaves these imagery together. And what on first reading seems like a little parlor trick, really when you actually see it in its context, Oh, there's some theological depth to this sign. If Pharaoh was paying attention, he would have second he would have had second thoughts about just saying, ah, no big deal. And certainly readers later who are reading this would see the implications of events like this and go, oh, all along, God was showing his superiority over the gods of Egypt and the forces of darkness throughout on a cosmic level through these little acts that he's doing. So there's incredible significance in this. Uh, let's move on, and we're going to hit this week the first sign. So, or the first play, verse 14. So Pharaoh didn't believe. He said, ah, oh, nice trick, but my guys can do the same thing, even though they didn't quite do it right. Um, verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. The word is heavy in Hebrew, kaveh, unyielding, sluggish. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. And, and it uses the word snake there, so referencing back the first time it happened. Then say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may serve me. And that verb in NIV is worship, but in Hebrew it's serve. It means both so that they may serve slash worship me in the desert. But until now, you've not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am Yahweh. With the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. And that phrase, it doesn't say wooden buckets and stone jars, that's an interpretation. It actually literally says, blood will be everywhere, in the trees and in the stones. And the interpretation is the trees refers to the wooden vessels and stone refers to the stone jars. But it could be saying, It'll be everywhere from the sap that the trees suck up to the springs that come from the stones. All the water in Egypt, basically it's an imagery of saying all the water, not just one stream of the Nile, but water throughout the land is going to be turned into this word blood or dam in Hebrew. Now blood can be literal, 
or it can mean red because it's a color, just like in English the word blood is a color. Uh, if you're a decorator or a painter or something, you're familiar. So uh, again, scholars say, okay, is, did, the, did the water in the Nile really turn into literal blood, like hemoglobin, like the stuff that coagulates? And, and all, you know, if so, then how would it, that would have a tremendous ecological disaster, and it would be a lot more than just inconveniencing what they drink. Others say, well, the Nile is known every year it gets what's called the red flood, which is the red silt that flows down from uh, the Nile flows south to north. So the red silt from the highlands in Africa that flows up to the Mediterranean is carried down yearly and deposited. And at certain times of the year, the Nile does look red. I have a picture here if you want to see it. It looks red from the silt and also from a bloom of algae that comes in, kind of like the crimson tide here in the, in, down in the Gulf. So they say this, this turning to blood doesn't have to necessarily be literal blood. It could be turning into blood color stuff, turning it red. The purpose of it was not to create blood. The purpose was to make the water undrinkable. And so this, this heavy flow of silt or this heavy growth of algae, whatever it was, would have accomplished the same thing. So again, we don't want to get too hung up on the exact nature of the plagues because it's giving us an overview and it's giving us the theological focus of it, the symbolic focus of it. How it looks in the details, if you're going to make it into a movie, you've got some leeway on that. But it wasn't just like in the new Exodus movie, crocodiles started eating a bunch of each other fish and it was just blood from that. This was the whole water supply, all the canals, even the stuff in the trees and the stones, whatever that means. All of it had been turned into this blood stuff. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. But all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water from the river. So all of the surface water was affected. The Egyptians had to dig wells along the Nile to get the water that had filtered down through the sand and that was somewhat potable. Now, Pharaoh's magicians, they were able to do the same thing. Notice, they weren't able to fix the problem. <laughs> they just could do something like it. You know, maybe they had some powder and put it in some water, voila, you know, whatever it was. However they did it, they couldn't undo what had been done. The Egyptians still had to dig for water. So, it, again, the signs, the, 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 the mimicry that the Egyptian magicians are doing, once again, is, is coming up short of what God himself is able to do for real. Now, throughout with Exodus, uh, let me say one thing real quick uh, about the plagues in general, and then I want to get back to the Nile. We've got about two more minutes. One thing to keep in mind, uh, the plagues as a series, like we said, they're all to show God's mastery over these domains that the Egyptians held sacred. In Egypt, there was a term ma'at, M-A apostrophe A-T. Ma'at was like the Hebrew word shalom, or it was like the word tranquility. It was the concept that everything in nature should function in its place, and when that happens, there's ma'at. There's 
wholeness, there's tranquility. And the, and the role of the Egyptian gods and the Egyptian religion was to ensure that that ma'at, that balance, remained. And if something got out of line, then it was time to start praying or going to war or building something or doing something to keep it in line. That was Pharaoh's role, was to preserve the ma'at. All of these signs in Exodus are God completely throwing that out the window and saying, no, I, th things are going to function entirely new in, in entirely different ways right now because I'm going to show you that your whole ideas of what you understand nature to be are wrong. So there's a deep theological thrust to these signs. They're targeting the gods of the Egyptians one by one. The god of the, one of the Egyptian gods, everything in Egyptian nature was deified. The Nile itself was seen as the lifeblood of Egypt. The Nile was embodiment, was the embodiment of Osiris, one of the Egyptian god, the main gods. So an attack on the Nile was an attack on the gods of Egypt. Turning the Nile to blood was doubly ironic because when's the last time we read about Moses and somebody walking beside the banks of the Nile? Do you remember? Remember when Moses was a baby? Was a baby. And Pharaoh's daughter was walking along the banks of the Nile and she the Nile had been the thing that the Pharaoh had used to commit genocide against the Israelites. The Nile was full of blood, symbolically or theologically speaking. The blood of the Hebrew babies that had been thrown into it. So it was like this ironic, like God saying, let me show you what this Nile actually is. You think it's a God that preserves your life? You think it's Osiris providing yearly inundation so your crops grow? You think it's where your drinking water comes from? There's even later in Ezekiel when you read about Pharaoh and his pride and God speaking to it. And Pharaoh says, the Nile is mine. I created it. This kind of pride of, of just his power. God's turning all of that on his head. And he's saying, I'm going to turn the lifeblood of your country into actual blood. Whether it's symbolically this red stuff or whether actual blood. Same thing. There's a, there's, a, there's a deeply ironic, tragically ironic sense of this. Is God's kind of unmasking nature and showing his power over it and targeting one by one the gods of Egypt. We'll see it in the next plagues when, uh, when frogs come on the scene. Um, keep that in mind. When you read about it, if you go on Google and you, and you get on the internet, just beware of Wiki, Wikipedia theologians is what I call them. Um, where they take an article here and a scientific thing here and they piece together this whole big thing to try to explain everything. You get a lot of these when it comes to the Exodus. Like here is a list of the natural things that could happen to show this. So the Nile would be inundated with flooding. That would kill all the fish. The fish rotting carcasses would generate flies and frogs and this and that. And then that would result in the animals dying and that would result in all of this stuff to try to explain it naturalistically. The whole purpose of it is God's the one behind it all. There's no need to look for a perfectly natural explanation of it all because even if you could explain the mechanism of these plagues, the timing is the main thing that God's doing. He's saying, now I'm going to do this in the presence of Pharaoh when Moses stretches out his hand. So you can bend over backwards to try to explain the mechanics, but you still haven't explained the miracle, which is that it happened at the command of God through Moses and Aaron. So just be aware of that. You go online and get, you know, it sounds exciting, and somebody quotes a Bible scholar here and a scientist here, and then people start passing it around in emails, and just, just when it comes to anything on the internet, grain of salt. Take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> Stay with the text and filter everything else through that. Um, 
as you go. We got to run. We're one minute over. Have a great week. We'll be back next week. Exodus chapter eight, and it's going to be froggy time. <laughs>